Justice Tech Pros here. Um, today we're going to bounce around a little bit. It's going to be one of the, uh, I guess, random topic type shows. A few things just came across uh, my mind the last couple days and I wanted to touch on them on this uh, episode. Uh, one thing that you know got me reflecting and thinking was um, with the holiday approaching. It's actually in a day. It's uh, tomorrow tomorrow will be Christmas, and I started thinking about, you know, everybody out there who's visiting loved ones and trying to um, get through this time, and, you know, trying to make the best of a bad situation, and I, and I started reflecting on how when you, you know, those who have experienced visiting their loved ones while they're away, unfortunately, you know, it's just, it's not a pleasant experience, and I don't even mean the uh, personal side of it, of where they're going to meet with somebody who is unfortunately incarcerated. What I mean is um, actually going through the ordeal to get into the visit. And uh, those who have never experienced it, fortunately who have never experienced it, I don't think they realize what kind of uh, a stressful situation it is, which is sometimes enhanced by a lot of the staff at a lot of these facilities. And I'm not saying every facility, but a few that I've experienced, I mean, they make an already difficult situation even harder, which I can never relate to. I mean, you you know that people are going to visit their loved ones. You know that they're dealing with a trying time and the attitudes that you deal with. I mean, the people where you got to just pretty much keep your mouth shut because they, they hold the cards in that, uh, in that arena. I mean, they control it, and you can't say anything, you can't be nasty back, because they'll terminate a visit, you won't even be allowed to get in, and I just think to myself, how um, unhappy and miserable of a person you must be, where if you work in these facilities, and you're giving the family members a hard time, when they're just trying to see their loved ones, I mean, the attitudes you have to deal with, and the, the crazy procedures, I mean, in one of these places... Where I would go, you had to wait outside in like this um, enclosed area, regardless of what time you got there. So it wasn't even like first come, first serve. And if you try to get there early, sometimes it doesn't do any good because the way they would would, um, plan out or the way they would have their, I guess the way they they thought it it was... A um, well thought out procedure, but it really wasn't. It it was very chaotic, but the way it worked was you had to wait in this enclosed area. And you'd have like maybe 30, 40 people waiting in there. You'd try to go into the facility and they tell you, first of all, very nasty. They don't even acknowledge you. They got the attitudes going. And they just tell you, go outside. You got to wait for when we're ready. And we'll come outside and they bring you papers, uh, the paperwork. You have to fill out paperwork uh, to then go in and have your visit. So you're you're waiting in this uh, enclosed area. There's like a a bench in there. And you could sit in there for hours at a time just waiting. And then they'll come in. They, you know, they grace you with their presence. And they have an attitude, miserable, you know, miserable look on their face. And they come in. And then they start handing out these papers. And everybody, you know, of course they want to get in. But people, uh, people are, you know, cutting each other and grabbing a paper. I mean, there's no... There's no rhyme or reason for it. It makes absolutely zero sense. 
And then, you know, you could be the first one who was there, but then you wind up getting a paper. They're all numbered. So you could be the first one that was there, and you mind that you may wind up getting a paper with number 12 on it because people jumped up and cut in front of you. So now from being the first one there waiting hours, you're the 12th to go in. And the system just makes no sense. You figured they would just have the papers waiting on the desk with the numbers written on them. People would go up, first one to show up, grabs number one, and so on. And then... You know, they call the numbers as, as uh, they want to they wanna call them, which that part would make sense. I mean, after you get your paper, then they'll call the numbers in sequence. You know, they may call 1 through 10, then they'll process 1 through 10, then they may call, you know, 11 through 20, and so on. So, so that part makes sense. But what makes absolutely no sense is the part of where um, you have to go there and wait. And just sit there, and, and when they come out and decide to give you the papers, regardless of what time you got there, you can wind up getting a higher number just based on people cutting you, people jumping in. And again, the the attitude you have to deal with, and it's a stressful, it's a stressful environment. Everybody's packed in, everybody's shoulder to shoulder. You're going through a, a body scanner, then you're going through a metal detector, then you're sitting and you're waiting to be called. Then you got to wait for uh, whoever you're visiting to be called down. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just a uh, a highly anxious, I guess, type of situation. And you're just trying to get through it. And on top of it, you got to deal with such nasty, miserable people. I mean, I remember going and telling people, you know, asking them, how are you? How's your day going? And you just get no answer. You get the nasty look. And, and to myself, I just laugh because it's like, okay, you're in here. And you have a little bit of power and you got this attitude. It's amazing. And the way I look at it is if you're not good with people, which is fine. I'm not, you know, some people just aren't really a great, uh, don't have terrific people skills, which there's nothing wrong in that. But just don't get a job then where you have to deal with the general public. That's all. Go sit in a cubicle somewhere where you don't have to see nobody. Go crunch numbers or something. But when you're dealing with the public day in, day out. And you're making already a hard emotional situation that much tougher because you're going to give attitude and you're going to have this, you know, nasty, miserable look on your face. Uh, it's just very frustrating. I had to vent a little on that because I was just thinking about that during this time of year. Families don't need that on top of their plate. You know, they don't need that in addition to. And then, you know, you get in. Then it's another uh uh, another um, experience where you have to try and get, um, they'll have vending machines, so you want to try to get your loved one something to eat, so you got to fight for the vending machines and wait online for that. I mean, it's all just a really intense situation, and you're trying to make the best of it. And I can't help think, like, how miserable some of these employees are that they see families going through this, and they give them such an attitude, and they're so nasty and they got such a miserable personality and you just, you know, you can't do nothing about it. You got to sit there and be quiet because you're in their house. You open your mouth, you say something nasty, you're not going to get a visit. They could even stop you. And it's just a, a, a sad state of affairs when people abuse the power they have. You know, that's just something that I really, uh, I can't relate to. You know, when you're in a position of power, you should try to use that power. I'm not saying you got to be, you know, this happy-go-lucky person, but you shouldn't be nasty 
and you shouldn't make somebody who's going through something rough make their time even more horrid. You could be pleasant. You could be um, a decent person. You could greet somebody. When they say hello, you could answer back. I mean, it's common courtesy. You figure that's how people are normally raised. You know, and it, and it's just, uh, there's that old saying, you know, uh, with power. And it could apply to so many things, you know. It says power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when you have somebody who has poor ethical background or poor morals in a position of power, I mean, they could do a lot of damage. They could do a lot of damage. I had an email come in from a listener where they told me, this is just an example of somebody abusing power. They told me that um, their husband got approval to go to, unfortunately, he lost his brother while he's incarcerated now. One of his brothers passed away. And uh, the wife had emailed me that she had sent over $1,200 to the jail to cover the expenses of allowing her husband to attend his brother's funeral. And she got all the prior approvals. They approved everything. He was told he's going to be allowed to attend it. She sends the money. And the day before, the warden decides to knock it down. Just no reason. Just says he can't go. So this poor woman, you know, she just uh, sent an email to me just explaining that. I guess, you know, just wanted to vent a little bit. And I do I do feel for her. I mean, that must be a terrible feeling where, you know, I don't know the crime. I don't know what it was. But that that's irrelevant. The point is, tell the person from the beginning they're not going to be allowed to go. That's all. Tell the family, no, they can't go. If that's going to be a decision, don't build somebody's hopes up. And then use your power and abuse your power just to rip it right from them. And I see that taking place a lot. I mean, in, in you know, people who are incarcerated, you see a lot of abuse of power. And you shouldn't be in that position if that's the way you're going to use your power. If you're going to use your power to really play games, play mind games with people, uh, I don't know. It's, listen, again... Nothing's going to change. This is just the way it's going to be. But this is, uh, today is going to be a little bit about venting, I guess, and just, you know, enlightening the listeners on just things that people go through that you don't realize that goes on behind the scenes after somebody gets sentenced and after somebody is away, what the family has to endure and what the individuals have to endure. You see a lot of times, um, inmates, They'll just get moved. You know, they'll be set up in their cell. They'll have a job ready to go. No explanation, nothing. They get moved to another cell, another block, another unit, a smaller unit. They have to restart everything. They no longer have the job. And there's no rhyme or reason given. It's almost as if they get a little bit comfortable. You know, they get in in almost like a groove. They get in a mindset. You know, they know where they're at. They're trying to make the best of it. And then, boom, they have everything disrupted. And those things just don't make no sense to me. And you know that a lot of the times they're doing these things intentionally to target individuals because it could happen. You know, say you got five guys or five women on one block and they only take one person out. And, you know, they, they move this person and they disrupt their whole their whole life. So you know that they're, they're specifically targeting this person just to make their life miserable. 
And what's the point of that? I mean, somebody's already in there. Somebody's already doing the time. You want to you wanna pour salt on the wound? You know, it, it's, uh, it's scary when you're, when you're in the system how powerless you are because who are you going to complain to? I mean, even that example with the guy with the warden where the warden just changed his mind at the last minute and denied that guy from seeing his brother. Who are you going to complain to about that? The warden runs the show in there. There's nobody to go above him. Yeah, you could write letters. You could do this. But think about it. When does that really have an effect? I mean, it brings me back to, I think it was about a year ago at MDC in Brooklyn, the facility in Brooklyn. You may have read about it in the in the news if you're from New York. They had a huge problem. They had a big power outage. People were freezing. People uh, were cold. No lights were on. It was like one of the coldest uh, stretches we had in New York. And, you know, nothing was really done about it. I mean, you know, people went down. They made a big deal about it. People were protesting. And, but the bottom line is it happened. for And for a ridiculous amount of time. It was like over a week and some, or something. And there was no, there was no rush. There was no um, urgency to get that fixed. You know, it just kind of stretched out. Families couldn't visit their loved ones. Their loved ones were inside. They were in lockdown. And it, it's amazing to think that in America, all these things take place. I mean, all these type of unjust acts take place, and all these um, abuses of power. And it's frustrating, you know, sitting back and being involved. And if you if you have a loved one you're visiting and, and you're going through this thing personally, and then when you see friends of yours or um, clients experiencing that, as a human being, it's frustrating. You know, when you, when you go through life, you try to do the right thing. You try to live by a certain moral code. You try to treat people a certain way. And then when you see others taking advantage of power, and, you know, um, making, you know, people's lives miserable. I mean, I, when I would go to MDC and I'd go on a visit and I would see um, mothers and I'd see kids and I'd see what they have to go through. And, you know, it's hard seeing a, a woman go through that, an older lady go through that. I mean, an older, you know, an older father going through that, a grandfather going to see their loved one. And on top of going through that, they're dealing with these nasty individuals who are working there who are just you know, being nasty, being rude, not greeting people, not even responding to a a, a, um, a pleasantry, nothing, no acknowledgement, just basically treating you like you're, you're trash, you know, throwing a paper in your face, telling you fill it out, bring it back, you know, those things are just hard to relate, that's not how I grew up, that's not how I was brought up, I was brought up to have respect, to be courteous, you know, to be um, cordial, to respond if somebody asks you, how's your day going? You know, not to just ignore them. So I just can't relate to those things. You know, you, it's foreign to me. And then on top of it, when you you figure they would be a little sensitive to the fact that visitors didn't do anything wrong. Visitors are coming in to see their loved ones. So even if they have it in their crazy mentality that they're in there and everybody they're dealing with is guilty and everybody's a convict. If that's their mentality, okay, that's their, their, you know, mentality. What's the logic behind treating family and friends of the inmates a certain way and treating them in a derogatory manner and treating them uh, in a way that's pretty much abusive, you know, and it's just, uh, 
inconsiderate. And those things are just, you know, a lot of those things are just hard to sit back and and accept. And the facts are, that's all you could do. You're in their house. You got to play by their rules. And I'll see people get nasty with them. I'll see visitors, you know, they're frustrated. They get nasty, but nothing happens. You know what happens? I, I've seen them take away their visit. I've seen them put it on a list where they can't come back and visit. You're not going to win. When you're there, you know, when you're there, you're not going to win. There's nothing you could say, and they know that. And that's what's frustrating. They take advantage of that. That's the crazy part. They know that they have you there. They have you handcuffed, and they take advantage of that fact. And it really is a shame. You know, in this time of year, you got some families where, uh, you know, their loved one was arrested, and now they, they didn't make bail for some crazy reason, you know, whatever it may be. Even though the facts don't show this person to be a danger to society, they still didn't make bail. And they're suffering now. They're in this time of year. It's a very hard time to not be able to, you know, sit down and have a meal with your loved one and enjoy the holiday. And, you know, whatever your traditions may be, to sit down and enjoy them together. You know, that's what life's about, being with family, enjoying one another, enjoying the times you have. And when that's stripped of you, it's tough times. And, you know... I really empathize with those out there who are going through that because it's it's a hard thing to go through, and you got You got to just keep on moving on, and you got to um, try to keep fighting. Got to try to keep fighting to do and exhaust every avenue you can. And what I mean by exhaust every avenue you can, you know, even for those who are maybe in there on bail, and I talked about this briefly in a prior episode, when you originally get arrested and you get indicted and if you don't make bail and you're in there as family members and as the defendant themselves you got to start working on your case immediately you can't wait and you can't you know a lot of lawyers a lot of times they'll try to say we have time we have time for this get that out of your head you got to start working immediately the second you start getting the discovery the second you get your hands on it do what you can to help out you know, if if they're claiming that there's audio tapes and they're claiming that there's certain things, start playing those audio tapes. Give them to your family members. Start, you know, whoever who, who could help. Start playing them. Start listening to them. Start transcribing them. Start going through the discovery. A lot of the times, which is important, when they uh, remand somebody on bail, they'll cite something that the um, the prosecution may try to cite something that supposedly is evidence that supposedly exists in the discovery. They might they may cite a, co- a conversation or a wiretap or they may cite something um, that they have. Start pulling that apart. If they start to cite a conversation for grounds of keeping you or keeping your loved one uh, incarcerated, pull that up. Pull that up and tear it apart. So if they say on, you know, October 5th, John Doe said he was going to... Uh, baseball bat somebody and that's why that's why we have to keep him uh, remanded without bail because he's a danger to community try to find that tape transcribe it make sure that's what it said do not take the their word for that you got to make sure that's what it said what was said because i've seen it firsthand i've witnessed it a lot of times the claims they make during bail hearings are 100 percent inaccurate they never happened And I'm not even talking like a a misstatement of words. I'm telling you they've never happened. And you got to prove they never happened. 
And again, what's scary about that is even if you prove it, a lot of the times the judge don't want to hear it. And again, I've seen that firsthand where we have proven claims made at the bail hearing was not accurate. And the judge would just shoo-shoo it away and find something else to hold on to. So, you know, when you first, you know, you, you have a right to the bail hearing, then you could ask for another bail hearing. Usually you go in front of the magistrate, uh, a judge magistrate for your first bail hearing, then you could go in front of the uh, assigned judge, uh, judge for the second one. And if you disprove statements made at the first one to the second judge, sometimes if you have a reasonable judge, that'll help you get your bail. I mean, if you're showing that what the prosecution saying and what the U.S. attorney stating is inaccurate, that could help your fight to gain bail and to be released and to come up with conditions to release you. So it's just very important to take notes and and one of the things that's a good practice, and it does cost a little bit of money, but when you when you go for those bail hearings, order the minutes. You know, there's always the stenographer taking the minutes. After that bail hearing, you tell the lawyer to order those minutes. And you go through those minutes and you see exactly what was said at that bail hearing. And you compare it to what's in the discovery. Look for inaccuracies. Look for things that are not true. This way you could show it. So if they try to cite conversations... And then you go through the discovery and what they're saying took place, never took place. You have your attorney put in a motion to rehear the bail and you present that. You know, and you try to show it. And if you have a fair judge, you're going to have a leg to stand on. If you have a judge who's there with an agenda and is going to make excuses, I'm sorry to say, but there's really not much you could do. Because talk about power. You know, that's their world for sure. That courtroom is their world. And they'll do whatever they want to do and they'll make excuses and they'll clean it up too. They'll clean it up for the prosecutor if you have one of those judges. So if you, if you have a fair judge, all these things are very important. And whether you have a fair one or not, you have to do it anyway because you have to preserve the record. You want to make sure you get all these things on your record. And what I mean by the record is in the minutes, in the court minutes. You just want to make sure all of these things are on there that you find. So, you know, as a team... The second your client's indicted, you got to start working. You got to really start pulling this stuff apart. And nowadays, everything's on hard drives. Uh, the discovery, which is their evidence, is all on hard drives. So you really want to go through it. I mean, you want to go through photographs. You want to go through timelines. You want to make sure. And, and there's a lot of resources out there that you could use to help certain things. You know, um, on a lot of the cases, I'll use Google Earth. I'll use um, sites where you could pull up old newspaper articles. If I want to research about um, informants, you know, I'll subscribe to sites where I could pull up old new- newspaper articles where you can't really pull up that information just on Google Earth. On I'm sorry, on Google or on a search engine. You need a uh, newspaper database because you want to pull up articles that aren't online anymore. All those things come into play. You know, you want to really utilize all those skills that you could access at your fingertips at your home. I mean, there's a lot of other things you could do that you can't access without paying for subscription services and things like that. But there's a lot that family members can do to help to help their loved one, to, you know, save money, help, and, and push the case. I mean, when we come into a case, that's really what we do. We look to um, extract everything, analyze everything, and come up with 
the, you know, a defense and to come up with, you know, showing our clients a case and helping build the case for the attorneys, whereas we support them, you know, and we try to, we try to really pull apart all the information that we have. And it's a constant thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of trial attorneys, and I say this from experience and I'm not knocking trial attorneys, uh, there's a lot of great ones out there, but some of them, you know, they procrastinate and that's complete opposite of what I'm about. You know, I'm the type of guy, everything's got to be done yesterday. And some of them I notice procrastinate, you know, they, they go by deadlines. Well, we have time for this. We have time for that. As a family member, I'm telling you, don't go by that. Start immediately. Go through everything, wherever you could help, help. If you could transcribe stuff, transcribe it. If you could play the audio and hear, listen for things, listen to it. Try not to just leave everything for due dates. You know, get the due dates out of your head and just try to dive into it as soon as you get it. And that's a big mistake I see a lot of uh, defendants making, you know, where they, and it's not their fault. I don't blame them at all because unless you're involved in this, you really don't know how it works. And a lot of sumo, well, my attorney's working on it. But if you have an attorney who's laid back and, you know, has a bunch of cases going on and they can't give your case the time it needs and the attention it needs. That's a problem. You know, I always felt in business, no matter what business I did, the client should always feel as if they're the only client I have. I'm not saying they are the only client I have, but they should always feel that way. And what I mean by that is they should be the most, they should feel to themselves that they're the most important client or customer that your organization has, that they're getting the attention they need. And especially in this industry, in the legal industry, this is somebody's life. There's nothing more important than that. So they really should feel that way. You know, you can't make somebody uh, try to chase you down and ask you questions and it's hard to get in touch with you and leave you messages and you don't give back. You know, they're your lawyer. I understand that. But you're paying them. You know, unless it's a, a public defender, they're not doing it, or a CGA, they're not doing this for free. And your life's on the line. And they work for you. The same way, you know, when I work for an attorney, an attorney hires my firm, I also work for the client. And the client's going to be able to reach us whenever they need us. As a business owner, I don't shut it off. So I tell my clients it's 24-7. I mean, you know... That's just how it goes. When you're a business owner, you're in the service industry, you always got to have it on. For example, right now it's 2.40 a.m. It's 2.40 a.m. because I've been working, I haven't had time to do a podcast, and I got it in my head. I wanted to talk about a few things, so I decided to do it now. That's just how it goes. There's no clock. And when you're in this kind of industry or you're a business owner, you know that's what is expected of you. And when you have a client who's a defendant and their life's on the line, they deserve that. They deserve that attention. They deserve that one-on-one. And for all those out there listening that may be going through this and may be experiencing, unfortunately, they find themselves in the justice system, really start questioning about the discovery, about the evidence against you. Really start looking at it. If you had a bail hearing, get those minutes, go through them, see what was said. See what was claimed by the uh, the other side. See what claims they made to justify you not having bail. And investigate it. Pull it up. See if it's accurate. See if what they said 
was stated was actually stated. Verify those things. Too many times, and I've seen attorneys do it on the defense side, they'll assume those things are accurate. When somebody's life's on the line, you never assume every anything. You verify it. You make certain that's accurate because a change of a word, a change of a sentence, a change of a topic could make all the difference in the world. So never assume anything. You got to pull that stuff apart. That's very important when you're fighting a case. And you know, that really um, stuck in my mind because I see it all too often. I'll I'll talk to people, I'll talk to clients, I'll talk to friends and they'll, they'll tell me, Oh, my attorney said we have time for this, we have time for that. Forget about that. Forget about that. When you're when you're in the system, time the clock starts immediately. And it's always running. It's always running. Remember, you're dealing with a very powerful oppositional force. One with a big staff, endless money, a ton of resources. So you have to work as hard as you possibly can, round the clock. To try to level the playing field, you know, because they they have um, they have a lot of areas they could go to, and a lot of different divisions, and a lot of different sectors they could go to, and they and a lot of different resources and, and manpower they could use. Whereas the average person doesn't have that, so the only way you could almost level the playing field, get it kind of close, is outwork them. You know, by outworking them, you have to do it on hours that they're sleeping. You know, and you, that's where you could play catch up. That's where you could really start to capitalize. And that's really my advice. And for listeners, you know, I enjoy getting the emails. I've been getting some uh, interesting emails about things that have taken place. I've corresponded with a few people about different injustices that they have experienced or are experiencing. And and I'll continue to try to touch on them a little bit, and I appreciate it actually, because um, you know it's uh, I I gain further insight and I see things that are taking place that I may not even be aware of, and and it's it's a sad state of affairs when those type of things are taking place and there's people are helpless. There's not much they could do. They're at the mercy of those in power, and it's a shame. It's a shame for them. It's a shame for their families. And I tell you, I was reading an article today that actually nauseated me. And it goes back to one of the topics in one of my uh, episodes where I was saying how they're giving out big time for some of these crimes where people don't even know what the crime is, like a RICO charge. And they're giving people life in prison. And then I'm reading an article about this degenerate. For You know, that's just what he is. I'm sorry. I know I try to keep my... Uh, my uh, personal feelings out of this, but with something like this, there's nothing else I could call this guy but a degenerate. He was uh, an ex-Bronx teacher, and he was behind. He's, he's behind bars. He was he raped a ten-year-old female special ed student. I mean, there is no words for that. And this guy got fourteen years. Fourteen years for that. I mean. That's not a life sentence right there. 14 years, a special ed, 10-year-old little girl. And they call that justice, something like that. But then they'll give somebody, take a plea for gambling for 13 years or for 14. How does that equate? How do you equate those two things? Or or a RICO charge, uh, they'll plea out for 20 years. How does that equate? 
somebody harming a 10-year-old girl to what's called a, a RICO conspiracy, a special needs girl to something RICO experience, uh, RICO conspiracy, life in prison. Makes, I don't know. I must not be that bright because these things just do not make sense to me. Something that you would figure is such a common sense thing and an easy way to have a scale in place of what's a serious crime and and what would be the time that would be appropriate for that. To me, I see it clear as day and yet it doesn't play out that way. So that just tells me I must must not be that bright because I don't understand it. And there's a lot that I just don't understand. I, you know, I'm seeing these things play out time and again in all different areas. You see it on the federal level. You see it on the state level. And, you know, the only way to shed some light on it is awareness. And that's why I keep doing this. And that's why I do these things at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, just to try to make some kind of change. Because eventually I'm hoping... Something like this, whether it's from my platform, whether it's from other platforms. If if I have one juror who, who gets assigned a case and has all of this knowledge in his head and just gives that person a fair trial, it, it's going to be all worth it. And it's like, a, you know, I explained my company doesn't solicit to the general public. So I started this podcast to appeal to the general public. It's only for information and educational purposes. And on, the, and on the educational level, it's really just on a common sense basis. It's really, I try to break things down on a more commonsensical manner. Yes, I could cite law. Yes, I could talk in a, a certain way that isn't relatable. But I know me, the way I am and the way I like to hear things, I like to understand a conversation as if I'm just talking to one of my friends. That resonates with me. When I have somebody on the high horse... You know, trying to talk down to people, trying to impress people with how smart they are. That, to me, that's a turn off and I'll tune right out. If you're that smart, you don't need to say it. Just say what you know, relate to your audience, and get your point across. So that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to relate on, on you know, just a regular level where one person talking to another with real life situations real-life examples, experiences that, you know, maybe you get a listener here and there that says, hey, he's right. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm hoping I could get somebody who one day gets picked for the jury that says, hey, I remember that episode on reasonable doubt, and this case didn't have any reasonable doubt whatsoever. You know, I watched the show a while ago, It was, and, and I talked about it briefly on an earlier segment. And again, I'm going to say it again because you got to try to watch it. It should be required material for every potential juror it's called exhibit a and it's on netflix give it a shot it's only four or five episodes but they break down various areas of science where it relates to the legal system you know from dna from cell site uh they even had a uh cadaver dogs where they did an episode which was fascinating where these dogs would do a tell you know the dogs would have a, a signal if they smelled um, a rotting corpse or something on some kind of material or fabric. And they even showed how that has a lot of holes in it. A lot of things could affect the dog's uh, senses. And a lot of different smells could give a false positive. 
And it's scary. It's scary stuff. People getting convicted of that. But if you get a chance, I just it just popped in my head because um, I spoke about this uh, next week or a week and a half on January 8th. I'm going to have Andrew Garrett on from um, Garrett Discovery is the name of his firm. And we've worked together professionally. And he's he's a very intelligent guy. And he's going to give uh, great insight. He's He's been part of a lot of cases and he's gonna. That topic's gonna be on cell site. We'll do different topics down the road, but I wanted to focus on cell site because it was actually a big part of the last case I was on. And what bothered me the whole time sitting in the audience was the um, prosecutor and even the uh, expert on their end was talking so matter matter of factly about the science behind cell site. And it's such a flawed science when you really break it down and you understand it. And it's so frustrating sitting there and knowing this and knowing how flawed it is. And without having an oppositional expert go into the flaws and and you see the jury wide-eyed and just taking in everything this expert is saying about the cell site without showing the other end of it. And, you know, that's... I don't want to call it a trick, but that's something that they do, which, listen, they're trying to win their case, whether it's ethical or not, is a whole different ballgame, but they're not going to show you the other end of it. You know, they're only going to tell you, and same with the defense, I mean, that's just the way it goes. You're not going to show both sides, you're going to show the side that helps you, but you always need that oppositional side, you always need somebody to rebut that, legitimately. You know, somebody with the credentials and the area of expertise to be able to do that and to talk in a manner that relates to the jury. And when you don't have that, it does a lot of damage. And they had the um, cell site expert on for uh, uh, some of the other defendants that it affected. It, it really didn't affect, um, uh, it didn't affect, or, you know, my, my father, uh, who I was helping his case, it didn't affect him, but it affected the other um, defendants. And you hear the cell site going on, and you hear the expert talking about it, and the jury is so enamored by what he's saying. And I can understand it, you know, to the layman, they hear this data and they hear this information and they're fascinated about it and they believe every word that comes out of his mouth. And that's the op- the time when you got to put on another expert that shows the flaws, that shows the inaccuracies, that shows how easily the data could be changed, that shows that it's not uh, as locationally accurate as they paint it to be. And there's so many ways that, uh, going back to that term of a false positive, could be given and a false location could be given. That's so vital. And that's with any kind of, you know, when you're, when you're preparing for your case, any expert that you think they're going to put on, you really have to get the the expert that's going to oppose that and the expert that's going to show the underside of that or the opposite side of that. You really have to get them in line. And that's so important. You know, it really is because experts hold a lot of weight to a jury. They really do. When they hear somebody's credentials and they're rambling off the degrees and they're rambling off the cases they testified in, it holds a lot of weight, even if they're if they're not accurate. And and that that's what's scary. I mean, you know, if they get up there and what they're saying is not true, it doesn't matter because a jury doesn't know if it's true or not and they're going to believe it. And the only way you're able to to, to knock that out is putting somebody with equal or greater credentials on the stand to refute what was stated prior. 
You know, and all those things just factor into building your case and making sure you have the strongest case available. And that's what we focus on. You know, that's what I focus on. That's what your your team should focus on. So whoever's out there, whatever team you're getting, if, you, if your family's going through something, the things you're picking up from these episodes, talk to your attorney about. Make sure they have everything ready to go. Make sure they're on top of things. And I've had a few, you know, um, emails and phone calls asking about attorneys that I can recommend, and I've done that for a few a few people. And and there's, there's, unfortunately, at this time, there's not many. I, you know, there's a few good ones, but it's and that's a hard thing to recommend. To be honest with you, I never let. I, I was always taught don't recommend lawyers and uh, doctors, <laughs> but when you you know, there's a few that I feel solid that I feel confident in doing that with. But it's just important for the public to make sure whoever they have fighting by their side is doing just that. Whoever's on your team, make sure they're on your team. And all of these things that I, I talk about, just keep them in your memory bank and try to utilize it and try to explore it when the time comes. Hopefully the time never does come and hopefully you're never on that end and you're just you know, listening to this as an educational or informational or you just enjoy the content, you enjoy the style. And that's really all I have for today. I want to thank all the listeners. Uh, please keep the emails coming. I enjoy reading them. Uh, and if you want them, as I said, if you want certain things right on the air, on the air, on the podcast, <laughs> I'm not on the air. Uh, just, uh, you know, write it down in the in the email and I'll be glad to discuss it and even uh, if you want to discuss it on the podcast we could do that as well I have a few lined up it's it's a touchy situation you know some some people they they want to only talk about certain things so I'm trying to iron that out I have a few that wanted to go into it on the podcast but I just kind of I have to navigate that cuz to be honest it's uncharted territory for me you know this is all new to me this podcast new this format's new so I just want to make sure I do it the right way and I give it the right voice and I'm able to accomplish it where it's, you know, fair to all parties. You know, one thing I try to avoid on the show, I don't want to come across like a soapbox and I do know my opinion comes comes out and that's the way it's going to be. I mean, so be it. I try to limit it in a lot of ways, but when you feel strongly about stuff and you feel passionate, that's just how it's got to go. But I try to say it in such a way that the listeners could understand where I'm coming from, even if they don't agree with me. They can understand there's a basis for it, and I'm not just, you know, spewing nonsense. And I'm hoping that's, uh, from from what I'm hearing, people are getting that, and I'm hoping it stays that way. And uh, we'll be back after uh, Christmas, so for those of you that celebrated, I wish you a Merry Christmas, you and your family, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in.